Amen, amen. All right, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8 tonight. Genesis chapter 8. This is a special service. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of the message. So if you have not yet um, grabbed your Lord's Supper juice and bread, they're in the foyer, so you can help yourself. Why don't I just do this? Does anybody need one that does not yet have one? Because I'll send the girls back. Everybody has them? Perfect. (laughs) All right, we're good. All right. So Genesis chapter 8. Noah and his family are safely aboard the ark. The flood has come. And now it's time for them to get off the ark as the flood subsides. So Genesis chapter 8, beginning verse 1. We're going to learn that God remembered Noah. So Genesis 8, 1, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him on the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The world as Noah and his family knew it had completely and totally changed. Everything was gone. So, sometime earlier, they were there building this ark. The animals were there, their neighbors were there, vegetation was there. Now they're on a boat floating on this endless sea. Everything is gone. They're being driven to an unknown place by the providence of God. But the first four words of verse 1 remind us that there is hope for humanity. Look at that text in verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah. Now this does not mean that God forgot about Noah and then suddenly remembered them floating on this boat. That seems kind of ridiculous. God's remembering of Noah is a reminder in the text that God intended at this moment to fulfill his promise to Noah, his family, and the animals that he saved in the flood. Now, our English word that we use to translate the Hebrew word there as remember is the best word for us to describe what's going on in God's mind at the time. And, but it doesn't mean the same thing that we use it for. When I say, I remember you, it, it kind of implies that I forgot you or you weren't on my mind, right? But we know that God never forgets anything. The Bible speaks of God remembering things as, as if to describe God coming to a point in time when He's going to fulfill a promise He made. And that's what this part means as well. Now, God does this throughout the Bible. In uh, God's prior covenant commitments, as in Israel's exodus and the, uh, their occupation of Canaan, God remembered them in Exodus 2.24. It also describes God's response to the requests of his people as when he delivers Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah on, accounts, on account of Abraham's mediation in Genesis 19.29. As well as, you remember Rachel who was barren? When she gave birth to Joseph, it said God remembered her, and that was the point at which she became pregnant. Divine remembrance was the appeal of Moses' intervention on behalf of apostate Israel in Exodus chapter 32, verse 13. 
And it was the reason for God's return to a contrite people in Leviticus 26, 42. Remember that word, as we translated from the original Hebrew, speaks of the future as well as the past and the present. For the psalmist declares that for the sake of the covenant, the Lord will bring about a future blessing on his people in Psalm 115, verse 12. Now, when we go through difficult seasons of life, sometimes it feels like perhaps the Lord has forgotten us, doesn't it? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever walked through a difficult season and felt perhaps that God has forgotten you? I have. Apparently just me and Doug. So Doug, let me just talk to you since no one else feels that way. It's easy to feel that way when we go through a difficult time. Perhaps during that time the Lord doesn't feel especially close to us. Our things aren't going the way that we had hoped. The way that we think they should go. In the midst of those times, we need to remember this. The Lord declares on 18 different instances, I will be with you. You know, he says that at 18 different times throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. Usually, he says, I will be with you. Usually, he declares that after challenging his people to take a gigantic step of faith. So God says, I want you to do this. And then I think the people are like, how in the world are we supposed to do that? What does God say? I will be with you. Usually he says that to remind us that what he's asked us to do is something that we do not have to do alone. But that he'll walk with us through whatever it is he's called us to do. Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has died, resurrected, told his disciples, go to a mountain in Galilee and meet me there. Right? So they all travel up to Galilee and they meet him on this mountain. And this is where Jesus delivers the Great Commission. This is Jesus' command on what he wants the church to do. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus says, Go therefore, go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus had just commanded his disciples to do something pretty amazing. Leave this mountain. Ultimately, they would leave, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the indwelling Holy Spirit, and then go to fulfill the Great Commission. You find that in Acts chapter 1. But ultimately, Jesus' command to them and to the church is to take this gospel message and to take it out into all the nations, all people all over the world, to share the gospel with them so that they can repent and believe. Now, that's a pretty big command, right? Certainly the disciples, and oftentimes I wonder, how is the church going to fulfill this command? It seems impossible. God is calling us to take too big of a step of faith. We need some reassurance. And that's what Jesus delivers here in Matthew 28, verse 20. I am always with you, even to the end of the age. You're not going to do it alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. God, through Scripture, 
says, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And in this part of the text, God remembered Noah. God made a promise to Noah. What was his promise? That I will, board, I will command you to build an ark, you will board the ark, I will flood the earth, I will save you and your family and the pairs of animals that you put on that boat. That's the promise. Now, they've been floating on that ark for over a year. Perhaps they wondered, where is God? Now, none of you would do that, I'm sure. But I, I imagine they did. God reminds us that He's with you. He remembers you. God is right there with you in the middle of the battle. When I wrote that part of the text for the sermon, it reminded me of a fishing trip. And um, we had a, a little boy in my boat. He was Drew Apel's nephew. And all he wanted to do was catch a big shark. He's like, I just want to catch a shark. So we got, I have this old, we call it the shark pole. It's this old, real stiff fishing pole. A huge crank reel. It's old. My dad gave it to me, but it's, it's big enough. And it, you can catch a shark with it, right? It's got big old heavy line. And so we uh, got that all ready. And I caught some fish and cut it up and put a big chunk of fish on there. Threw it out there. Put it in his hands. And he was holding that thing. Barely could hold it. It was so, you know, so big and heavy for him. All of a sudden, the line just goes. It just, it just took off. And he had more than he could handle, right? So we closed the bale. He's holding on that fish. And, and, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to let it go and lose the pole, right? So this thing's, this shark's pulling him over to the edge of the boat. And he's trying to hold on to this thing. He's leaning back, you know, and, and he's battling the shark all by himself. So he thinks, but who, who's standing behind him? His dad. His dad's right behind him, watching him, coaching him. He's with him. Well, it got too much for him. He's like, I can't hold the pole. The pole's like going toward the water. And he's just like this. And finally, dad comes up, you know, next to him and puts his hand on the pole. And they, they pick it back up. And he's helps him, he helps him reel it in. Just park that in your mind as a memory, a remembrance that your father and his son, the Lord, they're with you. Even when you go through your most difficult time, even when you feel like you're alone, he's literally with you. That's his promise. He's not forsaken you. He's not left you alone. He's with you. That same God remembered Noah and his family and all those animals on the ark. So let's read on and find out what's going to happen next. So look back at verse 1 again. The floodwaters are going to recede now. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. All the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. So God moves in two miraculous ways to end the great flood. First, the text says that God caused a wind to pass over the earth. Now this is a literal, physical wind fueled by the power of God. You know, it's interesting. I saw that and I thought, I wonder if God uses the wind in other places. Do you know that God has a habit of using the wind to do his work? Did you know that? Let me tell you a couple places. God's wind chased away the locust plagues in Egypt. One of the plagues in Egypt 
when the Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go was a plague of locusts. Now, God used a wind to remove them. Uh, God's wind divided the Red Sea. Did you know that? If you look back, um, when you get home, check out Exodus 14 and 15. I never really thought about the fact that when they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, you know, that God used the wind to move the water and to dry the ground. So it was probably windy while they were walking through the Red Sea. Did you ever think about that? It's very interesting. It was with the same wind that the Lord provided quail for the Israelites when they were in the desert. Numbers chapter 11, verse 31. So God, again, in this text, in this uh, context, he provides a strong wind to dry the ground. He also closed the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky. The springs that gushed with water closed and the pouring rains ceased. Now, the facts about what God did in that part of the text are, of course, very interesting. But what I think we need to remember from that part of the text is this. Who did all of those things? God did those things. God did those things. Who is in control of this moment in the text? God is in control. These guys are in a boat floating over a year. Everything they knew about the world is gone. It's important for them to remember that God is in control. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you're walking through something that's very difficult for you. God didn't stop being in control after the flood. God was in control there. He was in control in the life of the Israelites. He was in control when Jesus walked this earth. And he's in control in 2021. He's with you. He's not going to leave you. He's with you walking through your difficult time and through your times of joy. And he's also in control. Trust him and walk with him. All right, verse 3 continues. It says, And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month, and the tenth month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains became visible. Um, something I want to let you know about, if you didn't see this, I did put a, cr- a chronology of the flood. It's out on that round table. If you want to grab that on your way out, this literally just, you could read this text and it'll show you month by month what happened, when it happened, and how long it happened for. So those are on that round table there on the front. Go ahead and grab that on your way out if you're interested in just having kind of a, I like to see graphs, so it's cool to see when things happened and how long that was going on. So make sure to grab that on your way out. Verse 4 tells us that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat in the seventh month. That's very interesting. The seventh month is a particularly important month in the life of the Israelites. The seventh month in the religious calendar of the Hebrews was called Tishri. The most important month of all the sacred convocations. It included the Day of Atonement, as well as the Feast of Trumpets, Tabernacles, and the Sacred Assembly. as described in Leviticus chapter 23. It was appropriate, therefore, I think, that the ark should find refuge in this particular month, celebrating atonement, forgiveness, and God's provision. There are 
no accidents in God's plan. Nothing is ever an accident. Nothing takes place by chance. Do you suppose that God planned for this to happen? Who's in control? God, okay. It's also interesting to note that the ark, if you look at your text, came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Listen to Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, which describes the naming of Noah when he was born. This is describing his name. It says, Now he, that's his dad, called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work, from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So Noah is named Noah because he's the one that provides rest. And then on this seventh month, the month uh, that uh, eventually the Israelites would celebrate as the Day of Atonement, Day of Trumpets, uh, and the uh, Day of Tabernacles, and the Sacred Assembly, that on that month it would come to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, many archaeologists have searched for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. One scholar writes, Ararat, known, known as ancient Urartu in the Assyrian records, was an extensive territory and bordered northern Mesopotamian region. It reached its potential or political zenith in the 9th to the 6th centuries BC, and Urartu surrounded Lake Van with boundaries uh, taking in southeast Turkey, southern Russia, and northwestern Iran. Among the mountains of modern Armenia is the impressive peak known today as Mount Ararat, some 17,000 feet in elevation, which the Turks called Bik Arida. Bik Arida. Mount Ararat is a geographic designation that comes from later tradition. Um, however, verse 4 doesn't say that he, uh, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, but the mountains of Ararat, which were a mountain range. So it's a pretty big area if you check out a map. So if they're looking for it, and if it's still there, they're going to be looking for a long time because we really don't know where it is because this text isn't very specific in the location. We just know it was on that particular mountain range. That's really just FYI. Now, applying this part of the text, applying the fact that God sent Noah and his family and these animals into a boat, that he uh, provided a worldwide flood and judgment of the wickedness of humanity, and now the boat has come to rest on mountains of Ararat, leads us to a question about our lives. Do you believe that God can and will fulfill his promises? Do we believe that God can and will fulfill his promises? At God's command, the worldwide flood receded. That fact compels us to answer a question. Do I trust that God will accomplish everything he's promised to do in the Bible? Now, I know all of you believe that. Does God fulfill his promises? Well, we know theologically, yes, he does. God will accomplish everything he set out to do. He can, he has the power to do it, he's perfect, and he will do it. Well, just by way of giving you some encouragement and a reminder tonight 
about God and his ability to fulfill his promises, I have some scripture to read. What does the word of God say about God's power to fulfill his promises? Well, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will be pregnant with the Messiah. Mary was a virgin. An angel visits her and says, you're going to have a baby. Mary's like, all right then. Do you think she was a little surprised by that? In Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Angels tell Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a baby. And Sarah had some doubts because of their age. Remember that? Genesis 18.14, this is the angel's response. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you, and this time next year, Sarah will have a son. The prophet Jeremiah reflects upon God's power in Jeremiah 32, 17. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. And maybe tonight, if that's all you hear, maybe you just need to hear that. Nothing, nothing, nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing. Jesus tells the disciples that salvation is impossible on our own. Remember, he gets done. He's visited by several people who ask him about being saved. He has one particular rich young ruler come and says, Hey, what do I do? What do I got to do um, you know, to inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, you know, obey the commandments. And he lists a couple. And the guy says, I've done all that. I, I've done that since my youth. And Jesus says, Jesus recognizing that this man really has a love for money, that that's kind of the, the apple of his eye, that's what his supreme desire is for his wealth. And Jesus says, go and sell everything and come and follow me. And the, the rich young ruler leaves disappointed because he was so wealthy. He was unable to, to do that um, in order to follow Jesus. So his disciples, they look at Jesus and, and they're kind of astounded like, this is impossible. How, who could do what you're asking us to do? Who could be saved? Matthew 19, 26 says this, And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. He says, It's impossible for you to find salvation on your own. You can't do it through your works. You can't do it um, through the way you live your life. It's impossible. And I'm sure they're like, What are we going to do? Jesus continues, But with God, all things are possible. Of course, we know salvation is possible through faith in Jesus alone. That's why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why no one goes to the Father except through Jesus, because it's through Him, through His shed blood, through the forgiveness that He offers that we find salvation. The same God that provides our salvation in Jesus gives us His promise in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. What does that mean? The things that God calls me to do with my life, I will accomplish through His power. Not through my own power, 
not through anybody else's power or help, through the power of God working in and through me. So what God's called you to do, he will give you the power to do through him, through his promises. That includes our salvation. That includes the promised peace and joy that come from following Jesus, the eternal rewards that await us in our future home in heaven. So Noah sees now God's promises come to fruition. The earth is beginning to dry out now. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Then it came about at the end of the forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark. For the water was on the surface of the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited another seven days and again sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So no one knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. So Noah is sort of testing the, the environment, to try and figure out what's going on. He knows that it's beginning to dry up. After the mountaintops on Mount Ararat become visible, it's going to take five more months for the drying of the earth to complete. In that time, Noah first sends out a raven and then, and then later sends out a dove separately to measure the water levels on the earth once the ark rested on the mountaintop. So the ark's no longer floating. It's like, you know, when you're out in a boat and you get in water that's too shallow and you kind of and stop. Jack knows what I'm talking about. That's what's happened. So they're not able to get off the ark yet. It's not time, but the, the ark is no longer floating around. It's not bobbing around in the water. It's stopped. It's, it's resting. So first he sends a raven out. It's very interesting. He chose a raven because a raven is a stronger bird than a dove. It travels farther distances. So he first sends out the raven. Well, the raven, which is an unclean bird, uh, the text reports that once the raven goes out, it, it, it doesn't necessarily return. It flies back and forth from place to place and didn't necessarily return to the ship. Next, Noah sends the dove, which is a clean bird. It's one used for eating and for sacrifice. She returns, and he sends her out again after seven days. She returns this time with a fresh olive leaf in her beak, which meant that there was land and vegetation on that land. That's why that's important. Noah waits seven more days, sends her out again. This time, she does not return. Now, the dove and the olive leaf were essential elements in Israel's worship of God. The dove was a common sacrificial animal for those uh, who were poor. You see that in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 14. And the olive, uh, olive leaf or the olive tree produced the olive oil that was used to fuel their lamps in the tabernacle. Their presence in this event probably reminded the Israeli leaders or readers that God was indeed guiding Noah's step, that God was lovingly caring for him, that God was there for the family and the animals on board. Picture the 
um, the Israeli, Israeli reader or, or the person hearing this text read, perhaps as they wandered in the desert or as they gathered in their home and maybe during one of the many times that they received persecution, they probably would read this and they would see the symbols. They would see how God cared for Noah. It would remind them that God was with them, that God was a God who fulfilled their promises. Maybe Noah still had no idea of the importance of these particular elements, um, but God did use them to bring encouragement to the Israeli people after, sometime after uh, this event happened. Look now at verse 13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth, the earth was dry. So Noah removes this covering. It probably wasn't the big door that God closed when they got on the ark. Probably something near the top. Something that they could look out and that they could clearly see the ground and the fact that it was drying up. Now, do you suppose that it was difficult for Noah and his family to wait to get off that ark? One year, 17 days is what they spent on that boat. I get tired and I'm excited to get off my boat in one day, right? Can you imagine one year and seven, 17 days with all those animals on that ark, closed up? That's how long they were on there. Do you think perhaps that they had a difficult time waiting for God to take the water away, waiting for God to dry it up, waiting for God to give them the command that they could get off the boats. Now, fast forward to us, our life living today. We also struggle sometimes with God's timing, right? God's timing is not always our timing, right? Because God ways, God's ways are not always our ways. I have a great example for you. And our deacons, uh, they can... Um, they can verify this. I had the most difficult time with COVID in trusting in God's timing uh, for opening up our church to new ministries. I re- I'm just not going to lie. I really struggled. I wanted things open. I wanted people here. I wanted to be doing our ministry. I wanted to be doing things as a body. And, and God was very clear to us as we gathered and prayed. It's not time for this yet. It's not time for this. And we would wait. And, and every time that we waited, that was wise because we would have another spike in COVID or, or our city would pass some kind of regulation. So it was really hard uh, through that year waiting for God's timing. And even during that season, using it as an opportunity to grow in faith and trust in the Lord. Right? I wanted this place filled up with people. I wanted to be worshiping God. And instead, oftentimes, God was telling me personally, slow down. Just like, take a breath. Use this time to worship and to trust and to grow in faith. It's not always easy to wait for the Lord. But this is what the Word tells us. God's timing is always perfect. It's always, always perfect. How do I know that? Four verses right here. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up 
with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Ecclesiastes 3.1 There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Psalm 27.14 says, Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. I do not like that verse. I'm not going to lie. I don't like it because I often find myself in front of the Lord's timing. Anybody else in here? Like I've met people that, that struggle with being behind the Lord's timing. Like they know God wants this and they're kind of like dragging along, right? I'm not that guy. There's the Lord's timing and then there's me like running up here. And then when you're a person like that, those of you that raise your hand, oftentimes you run into things and then, and then you're humbled, and then you've got to come back and get back in line with the Lord. So there's hope for us, though. You know, God, God can work through people like us. Just remember Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be strong. Let your, heart take, take, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why should we wait on the Lord? Why should we trust in the Lord's timing? Romans 8, 28 tells us why. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Why should we wait for His timing? Because His timing, His will, His plan is the very best plan for us. There's nothing better. There's nothing better out there. Your plan, your scheme, your design will never be better than God's. His is always better. It's always, always, always better. And we have a great example here of Noah waiting on the Lord. I wonder if he actually ever said that to his family. You know, think about his family. Do you think that they harassed him a little bit? Like, he got us on this boat. We can't get off. What are we going to do? I'm sure Noah's like, trust the Lord. Just wait on the Lord. Trust the Lord. All right. Finally, everybody's going to get off this ark. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord, then, the, then, then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is, is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Whew, Noah and his family and all these animals finally God gives them word, it's time to get off that boat. I bet they ran off that thing, right? Oh man, I would have been so excited to get off that boat. It's interesting to note, we have nothing recorded in Scripture that God spoke to Noah for that year and 17 days that they sat on that boat. He may have, but there's nothing recorded here. It's very possible that God said nothing to them. And imagine as they waited for him to speak, as they waited for him to give them permission and commanded them to get off the boat. Noah and his family demonstrated exceptional faith in trusting in God to care for them and waiting for him to give them word to get off the boat. I bet they were excited. Don't you think? Would you have been excited to get off that ship? Yeah. So God speaks and commands Noah to empty the ark. And God issues another command and a blessing for all the animals to be fruitful and to multiply on the earth. 
This reinstates a divine, divine command that God issued at the beginning of time in creation. Genesis 1.22 says, God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Verse 18 records what Noah did in response to God's command. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Once again, Noah demonstrates his faith in God. Noah had a habit of doing exactly what God called him to do, didn't he? Let's look back at Noah's life. God breaks into Noah's life, right? Commands him, build an ark. What did Noah do? He built an ark. Then later, once the ark was finished, God said, get on the ark. What did Noah do? He got there, he took his family and all the animals, and they all got on the ark. Then now, at this point, what did God say? Get off the ark. What did Noah do? He got off the ark. It seems so simple, right? Yet that same God gives us commands in His Word. Very simple. Just like that. For us to obey. For us to follow. What do you think is God's favorite thing for us to do? Did you ever ask yourself that? What does God really, really love from us, His followers, His children? Jeffrey got it. You should come up here and preach, brother. Come on. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of the rams. So what does the Lord want for me? Obedience. He wants us to walk with Him and to walk with Him We've got to be walking in the same direction as He is. He has a plan for us. It's a pathway. Jesus said it's narrow, and few follow it. Jesus' call upon our lives is obedience. It's to love Him and to take steps of faith in obedience to His Word. He desires obedience. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our obedience doesn't earn God's love. He loves you. Just, just hear that tonight. God loves you. He sent Jesus for you. You're following Jesus. You, you have turned from sin and expressed faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. What does God want from us? Follow His Word. Now, we're going to make mistakes. That same God says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. That same God says that when you come to me in repentance, when we fail to obey his commandments, that same God receives us back with open arms because he loves a repentant sinner. Our obedience doesn't earn God's love. Our obedience is the fruit of our faith and love for him. So, at the end here, Noah is going to worship God. He builds an altar to the Lord, verse 20, and took every of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, that word animal in Hebrew um, means domesticated uh, animal. So what we think he probably did was um, that he probably offered uh, the domesticated animals uh, like cattle, bull, sheep, and goats, uh, which was common in Israel to be sacrificed, and probably a dove. 
or two. And um, we can kind of pass over that um, because we see that we're like, yeah, Noah, he took a step of faith and he offered these things to God. But what is easy for us to forget was there was a limited number of animals, right? Right? There are pairs of unclean and seven pairs of clean animals. So when Noah takes some of those animals and he sacrifices them to God, guess what? There's less animals for them to eat and less animals to multiply. So him offering these is a sacrifice to God, um, trusting that God would take care of them. That's exactly what he does. Now, Noah's act of worship compels God to offer his grace upon the world. Verse 21, the Lord smelled a smoothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. He will, he will um, expand upon what God says to himself here later uh, to Noah with the covenant of the rainbow. And he tells Noah, makes a covenant with us, that he'll never again destroy the world with a flood. God, God accepts and offers grace to us knowing that mankind is uh, devastatingly lost in sin and that we're going to continue to sin. Um, he offers grace to humanity by saying, I'm not going to flood the world again. He gives us grace. And ultimately that is um, typified, uh, exemplified, and demonstrated in Jesus coming to provide forgiveness for us in our sin. So while the, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God will, through his providence, provide an earth for us to live on, provide an opportunity for us to repent and trust in Jesus. What is our response to God's blessing in our lives? You see, Noah was blessed by God. He lived through the flood. He got off the boat God gave him the animals and his family and blessed them and said, go now and multiply. Noah's response to God's blessing was to worship God, an act of sacrificial worship of God. How do we respond to God's blessing in our lives? How do we respond to our health, our family, our opportunities, the salvation that Jesus provided for us? James 1.17 says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Everything that's good in our lives is given to us by God. God. I can't think of anything better to do at this moment than to celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper reminds us of the ultimate blessing in our lives, that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. Now, Brandon, I'm going to invite you up to the, the um, keys there. The Bible says that we're not to take the Lord's Supper without first inspecting our own hearts. The Lord's Supper is something that should be taken by believers only. It's something that we do to celebrate Jesus' death on the cross and also a reminder that one day he'll return. So what we're going to do in preparation for the Lord's Supper is Brandon's just going to play um, um, some music for us. I want us to take just a moment. If you have unrepentant sin, lay that at the Lord. Seek forgiveness. If there's someone in this room that you need to seek forgiveness from, we are to do that as well before we come to the Lord uh, with our worship and offering. So let's just take a time, take a moment.
make things right, from, uh, right with the Lord and with our uh, neighbors and prepare our hearts. And then after just a minute or two, then we'll conclude the service by celebrating the Lord's Supper.